0: So we continue in our Simply the Savior series. We began with the I Am's, we moved on to the Beatitudes, and now we're going to move with Jesus as he speaks to the disciples. And what a sweet picture this is because he's just said these things that are monumentally difficult to even imagine putting into practice. And realistically, they're impossible unless you're a believer, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is that, you know, these things are impossible. And we left off last time, if you were with us last Sunday night, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. It's like, are you kidding me kind of stuff? And now Jesus, much like our time in Ephesians, Paul's kind of turned the corner. Now Jesus turns, and remember, there's a great multitude. So this is a huge crowd. I've heard estimates maybe upwards of, could have been 10,000 people. They've kind of filtered in. As Jesus began speaking kind of specifically like a small group of disciples, if you travel with us to Israel, as you go to the the Mount, the Mount of the Beatitudes, where Jesus delivered this particular address, where he spoke the Sermon on the Mount. There's a chapel there, but there's kind of a a spot to where you can easily see kind of an outcropping of rocks a little higher than the rest. And it's easy to see how perhaps there at that place the disciples had gathered in around very close to Jesus, and then the multitudes just fanned out down the hillside. And they're all listening with, with kind of rapt attention. He's, he said these incredibly parabolic and yet difficult statements. He, he's reminded them of all of these things that they are as believers in Christ and how they should live their lives, these beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And In our world, we, we don't live in a merciful world. And, and Jesus would say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. People who have an unobstructed view of the heavens. And then as we ended this this incredibly difficult thing for us to understand, that we're actually blessed by being persecuted for his namesake. And so here this giant crowd has, has now swelled. And, and though we have it encapsulated, we don't know if Jesus spoke this entire message from beginning to end or whether... This happens to be the way Matthew recorded it. Luke records it slightly abbreviated. But this message just is a continuation now. And so Jesus is going to apply the Beatitudes. And he's going to begin with a very familiar passage to us. One that you all have heard before. If you walk with the Lord for any period of time, if you've attended church a handful of times in your life, chances are you may have heard a message on being salt and light but he's going to go on now and he's he's going to say for you are you are you are looking at the disciples Peter you are John you are James you are Andrew you are and maybe you look down into the crowd You all are, as the disciples of the Lord. Remember, the apostles are are a, a subgroup of the disciples, if you will. We are all disciples. That means to be a learned one under someone's tutelage, someone who follows another's teaching. As someone who is a disciple of Christ, that's all of you. If you're here tonight and you know the Lord Jesus, you're actually a disciple T, you are, Connie, you are, Kevin, you are, Sue, you are, you are the salt of the earth. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to just come and even to read these words. To read them and to go home would have brought a blessing into our lives. But Lord, we get to spend some time lingering on your word. Lord, would we have that same rapt attention? How would you give us the ability to listen in, Lord, with the heart of a disciple, one who wants to hear, wants to learn, wants to know what your Spirit would say? And so, God, tonight, it's your time. We've come to sit at your feet. Speak to us. Lord, tell us who we are in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. God's people all said. Amen, for you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's in good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, to get the parabolic nature of this teaching, as Jesus very often spoke in word pictures, in stories, we would call it expositorily, but him being the word of God, he could have just simply spoken the truth forth to them. But he chooses to illustrate it with something they all would have known. Salt was a very, very, very valuable commodity during biblical times. It's still a valuable commodity in our world. But then it was especially valuable. And it was also normally not pure as we see it today. You, you go in to the supermarket, you go to bonds, or you go to you know, your local market, and you pick up a little round cylinder of salt that you know, maybe one pound package, and it says on it, pure sodium chloride, and you dump it out, and it's perfectly white and shiny and crystallized, the granules are the same size, and you can sprinkle it on your food, or if you happen to be like, I, I really like beef jerky. You see, the way that you use salt to make beef jerky is it's actually a preservative. The sodium chloride is a preservative of the meat. And during biblical times all the way until today, salt was used as a preservative. So it was very valuable because if you had meat and you had salt, you could make the meat last a very, very long time. That was true not just with what we would call beef or, you know, those types of things, but... It was also true for goat. It was true for fish. You could salt virtually anything, dry it in the sun, and you could keep it forever. Now, if you happen to live in a day and time when there's no refrigeration whatsoever, uh, that was an extremely important thing because there's only so many fish you can catch and keep and eat. Amen? You bring in a boatload of fish, doesn't do you a whole lot of good unless you can figure out something to do with them so they don't spoil because, you know, weak old fish is not a good thing. And so salt was a very, very, very important commodity. It was worth a lot of money. But salt was mined during that day and time, especially there in what we would call modern-day Israel. But in the land of Palestine... And if you were to have gone there during that day and time, there were salt traders. People would go down to the Dead Sea. And if you go today, around the Dead Sea, there are all kinds of evaporation basins where the very salty water from the Dead Sea is allowed into those basins, they're flooded, and then they evaporate, and what's left behind is salt and dirt and rocks and all kinds of other stuff. And so we now have modern processes where we can take and extract out the sodium chloride, the chemical compound that is salt, and we can refine it, make it look nice and pretty, and put it in little jars. And in fact, if you're a salt connoisseur, you can go and you can now get, you know, pink salt, and blue salt, and purple salt, and, you know, there's my favorite, Hawaiian sea salt. There's all kinds of things. Salt's very important. It's important in your diet. You actually need some sodium chloride in your diet. It's actually very good for you. We've now found out that this whole thing, don't eat salt at all, is actually not a good thing. But during that day and time when someone got salt, it looked like a sack of dirt. And so the way that you refined that salt is you took your sack of dirt and salt and you sat over a small clay basin at your table which would have been a very low, kind of, almost like we would call a coffee table. And there at that coffee table, a plate would be placed on it. And you would take the salt between your fingers, which was about 80% dirt and 20% salt, and you would rub it very, very, very hard. And the pressure of you massaging the dirt and the salt together would cause the dirt fall onto the plate and the salt to stay in your fingertips. Hence the phrase, give me a pinch of salt. That's where it came from. The dirt would come out and then that salty dirt is good for, you don't put dirt, no matter how salty it is on your steak. Okay? You go to Ruth Chris, hey could I have some dirt please? And so in that day and time, they would finally grind that, and as the dirt was poured out, because it was a much finer powder, the salt being coarse, would stay between one's fingertips, and what would be left was salt, pure salt, pure as it got then. Now read this with me. For you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? If the salt becomes so mixed with the impurities of the world, how can you put it on your nice filet mignon? You see, Jesus was talking about what it meant to take that salt and not the dirt and the impurities and the other stuff that the salt was found with, and here's how it works in our world today. You see, we live in a world that's pretty dirty, amen? We live in a world that's full of all kinds of impurities, amen? And so you are mixed in as the salt of this earth, a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're mixed in with the dirt. And and as the world comes to you and as the world grinds away and as life grinds away and as you are pressurized and put into those situations and rubbed on and pressed in on the salt simply gets more salty it becomes very 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 visible because the salt itself remains and the dirt comes out that's why James said count it all joy beloved brethren when you fall into diverse trials for knowing that the rubbing of the dirt and the salt together, the testing of your faith produces patience. And when that patience has its perfect work in you, it leaves you complete and lacking nothing and really salty. You see, Jesus is speaking to them in an idiom, in a way that they could understand, a way that it would, be perf- it would be crystal clear to them. But if you get so polluted by the things of the world, if the dirt becomes more evident than the salt, then what good is the salt? But to be taken with the plate, off your table, with the impurities, and dumped out on the path outside your house. You see, because that little bit of salt in that bunch of dirt, if you, when you go to the Dead Sea, there's a reason it's dead. Because it's really salty. And so that salty dirt would be thrown out on the... Pe- where you didn't want anything to grow. Where you didn't want anything, no life. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. Go to the Salton Sea, you'll see the same thing here in California. It's dead. Dead the dirt and the salt together, it's not worth much. And so Jesus says to them, it's to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He goes on and gives them another example. You see, because these now are the Beatitudes applied to living, to life. And you are the light of the world. Notice he says, you are. Can I remind you that when Jesus says that, that's not an option. He's not giving you an out. He's not saying to you and I, well, you can kind of sort of, if you want to be, you can be salt. No, you are salt. The question is, are you pure salt or are you dirty salt? Are you polluted salt? You are light or are you light that's so hidden that no one can see you? Notice how he phrases it. You are the light of the world. And a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You know, there's a reason that lighthouses are always put out on very prominent pieces of land. It's so that they're visible. Amen? You don't put a lighthouse 25 miles inland underneath, you know, some overhanging cliff and shield it so that the light can't go anywhere. You put a lighthouse to where light comes out of it and people can see it. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket you see, during that day and time, a, a lamp was actually nothing more than a little tiny clay vessel would fit in the palm of your hand. It was normally filled with olive oil, and it would have a small wick in it. That wick would simply float in the olive oil, and they would light that on fire, and that fire would be the lamp. And amazingly, a little bit of light goes a long way when it's pitch black, when there's nothing else. That little tiny bit—we're spoiled because we have 8 billion lumen led, you know, lights in our house now. You turn them on, instantaneously it's light everywhere. But then they would have understood this, you would never waste the expense of taking that very expensive olive oil that cost you an arm and a leg down at Rabbi Cohen's store and and put it into the and Cohen was one of the Levitical orders of the priests, by the way, so I used that rather figuratively. You wouldn't go down and get the olive oil from the store there in town and then waste it by putting it in a lamp and lighting it on fire and then grabbing your basket and covering it up. That would be pointless. That would be senseless. That would be silly. That would be unthinkable. And so in that day and time, these examples would have been very, very, very easy for them to grasp hold of. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but you put it on a lamp stand. They very often would just simply take a stick, put it in the middle of the room on a dirt floor. They would try and grab a fork stick that grows out of the center of a a branch, and it would normally have at least a couple of limbs, and you could put the lamp in the little niche that was caused by the branches spreading out and it would stand up because that light then could flow down to a larger area. If you put the lamp near the floor it would go just in a very small area of influence. But the higher the light was lifted up the more it spread out through the room. You would put it on a lamp stand and then because all homes then we, we complained about our houses Did you know that in the 1960s, the average home in America was less than 1,200 square feet? Did you know that today it's over 1,800 square feet? Back then, it was 100 square feet for a whole family. About a 10 by 10 room. That was the average size of a home during biblical times and it was normally very low walls very low. we didn't have cathedral ceilings during that time you had a very low ceiling it was normally covered with earth on top actually they would put mud up there the mud would have seeds in it it would begin to sprout and then you'd have plants growing off the roof all kinds of crazy stuff but there would be this little space so as you lifted that lamp up and you set it up there and put your little oil lamp up there in a 10 by 10 area a little tiny lamp would light the whole room And so it's in that context that Jesus says it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light, you are, remember what he said, the light of the world. So shine before men that they may see your good works, your kalos, the work of God in you. Not that you are good, the works are good in you because of him. See your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so Jesus begins this discourse now that will take up several chapters. But he begins with salt and light. Now, being in Boy Scouts when I was in my, actually before my teens, uh, we actually still used semaphore. For those of you that don't know, that's flags that you could, depending on which angle you held each flag and which color the flag was, you could spell out the alphabet, and we used to signal each other from towers. We'd actually build the towers and do that whole thing. You may have seen old World War II videos or, you know, those movies from that era. If they're done in period, one of the things that would happen is they would take a lantern and on that lens... There is a set of shutters on it, and the shutters were capable of shutting out the light completely, and they would use Morse code by flashing whether the light was on and off, and it would either be a dot or a dash, depending on whether it was on for a short period of time or a long period of time. During that time when those were used a signalman would send a message by just simply dots and dashes. The ship's captain looked into a dark night, and he saw faint lights in the distance, and immediately he told his signalman, he said, send this message, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. A prompt reply came back via the signalman on the other, from the other end, and it said, no, you alter your course 10 degrees to the north. The king, captain of the ship was angered, and he commanded the signalman to send a second message because he'd been ignored. He said, alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm the captain. Soon another message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am seaman third class Jones. The captain, furious now, tells the signalman, send another message. Alter your, ten, your course 10 degrees to the north, immediately, I'm a battleship. The reply comes back, alter your course ten degrees north, I'm a lighthouse. (laughs) You never argue with the lighthouse. The lighthouse always wins. The lighthouse is stationary. The lighthouse is high and lifted up. The the lighthouse doesn't care how big the ship is. The ship's not going to do anything to the lighthouse. But the rocks that the lighthouse is trying to cause the ship to avoid will destroy the ship. Much like that, Jesus is now saying, Look, we, we are light in this world, and our world is perilous. And we have the capacity to transmit that light so that people can avoid the dangers of life. And so he begins with this picture that I think the easiest way for us to understand it is a single word. It's your influence. You have been saved by grace and through faith so that you might influence the world for Christ. That's the reason you're still here. If that were not true, when God saved each of us, he'd simply just take us home immediately. But he's left us here in this case to be first salt and second light. And so he says to us really this evening you know what's your influence look like? Is your Christian character consciously affecting other people for the cause of the gospel? Are you so putting your light out there that people can see who you are and what you are and why you live the way you live? Are you absolutely being salt? Are you absolutely being light? Are you living a Christ-like existence? You see, one of the things that I think the world points to when they talk negatively about the church is that the church doesn't do a great job of being these two things. We are not a preservative, and we are not an illumination in the world. We're not preserving the world against decay and preserving the world against rot. We're not saving the world and making it a more savory place to be. We are becoming polluted by the dirt of the world so that the salt that we have is not good for much. That's why it's so important that Christians live as closely to the life of Christ as they can. Not so close to the world because the world is filled with dirt. Your salt gets polluted. There's an ancient Greek myth about Persephone, and she came to the earth, she came uh, unseen, but her presence was always known by the blessings that she left behind. Everywhere she walked in a pathway, there would be, if there was a fire there, trees would sprout up. Flowers would pop up where her footprints landed. When she passed a stagnant pool of water, it became fresh. Parched fields, dry fields, dry hills turned green as she walked through them. Valleys blossomed. New life popped up wherever Persephone went. But there's also another Greek myth. It's a sister of Aphrodite. And though she was as beautiful as Aphrodite... She had been fed all of her existence on poison. And that poison had so infiltrated her system that wherever she went, her breath was as decay. And from infancy, everyone that she spoke to or got near was poisoned by the effects of her being. She was beautiful, but she was poisonous. Can I say to you, there are some churches that are beautiful, but they're poisonous. There are some Christians that are beautiful, but they're poisonous. And I'm not talking about just the ladies. There, there are guys, there are women, there are groups of people that when you look at them, there's something very attractive about their programs, there's something very attractive about the way they do ministry, there's something very attractive in a fleshly, worldly sense that when you look at them, you would be attracted, but much like Aphrodite's sister, once you get to know them, the smell of death comes forth from that ministry, from that person. We don't want to be that way. It was so bad in the life of Aphrodite's sister that ultimately if a bird flew too close to her, the bird would drop from the sky. Didn't even have to get close. What a tragic statement that would be on the church if that was the, the real work of the church, was that when people got near us, they actually got sick, not well. You see, we're to help blind people get their sight. We're to help lame people to walk. We're to help liars find the truth. We're to help angry people find peace. We're to have bitter people find forgiveness. You see, as the children of God, Jesus is saying, look, you have the cure. You have the preservative. You have what ails the whole world. Don't be polluted yourself. Don't take in the poison so that when someone sees you, they see something that's beautiful and dangerous. So let your light shine before the world, before people, before men, that they would see those God-honoring Christ's glorifying works and they would glorify God who's done those things in you. The great Andrew Murray exceptional holy life lived before the Lord. He was both salt and light. And you can see that because you saw his influence played out in his world, in our world. Andrew Murray had six sons. Five of them were ministers of the gospel. Four of his daughters of his nine children, or excuse me, his ten children, four of his daughters became pastor's wives. Ten of his grandsons became ministers. Thirteen of his grandchildren became missionaries. Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson, told the story one time of being in a barber shop. In his memoirs it said, I was sitting in a barber shop chair and I became aware that a powerful personality had entered the room and a man came in quietly and sat down. And he was on the same errand as myself simply to get his hair cut. And I saw him sit in the chair next to me and every word that the man uttered this is the president of the united states though it was not in the least didactic in other words he wasn't overbearing or overpower he wasn't super holy he wasn't spouting out you know spiritualisms he was simply conducting himself in life in a way that people knew something was different about him he was a light bearer he was a salty guy he said every man the word the man uttered though it was not inflated showed personal interest in the man who was serving him and before i got through with what was being done to me i was aware that i had attended an evangelistic service because it was dl moody who was in that chair he went on to say I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and I noted the singular effect that his visit had brought on the entire barber shop. They spoke in hushed tones. They didn't even know his name. But they knew something had elevated their thoughts and I felt as I left this place, I had left a place of worship. Oh, to be that salty. Salty. Oh, to bear that kind of light, that in going and getting your hair done, getting a haircut, going to the grocery store, going to Home Depot, Lowe's, hanging out someplace, as Connie and I do, I have no idea what they put in in Jack-in-the-Box tacos, I'm convinced it may be crack. But you just go and get some tacos at Jack in the Box, and you're sitting there, and your conversation is so filled with salt and so filled with light that people say, Man, there's something different. They prayed over those crack filled tacos, (laughs) they gave honor and glory to God with the very essence of who they are. No one's watching, no one cares. But you've been called into this world to be salt and to be light. You see, Jesus is speaking that type of of an influence into our lives right now so that we could influence the world that we live for his kingdom's sake. Jesus in in his prayer, his high priestly prayer in John 17, said, I do not pray in verse 15 there of John 17 that you should take them out of the world. You see, he's speaking of his own father, He says, I do not pray, Father, that you should take them out of this world, but that you should keep them from the evil one, that you should make them salty. Don't let them get polluted with dirt. Don't allow. Father God, do not let my disciples get polluted by the things of this world. For they are not of the world, Amen? There's a lot of not of this world bumper stickers out in the parking lot. I saw three or four of them just on the on the west side. Do you believe that? Because it's actually true. It's a believer in Christ as a disciple. You're not of this world. This world is not your home. You are just passing through, and one day you're going to see those treasures laid up beyond the blue. You believe that? Jesus prayed that for you, prayed that for me. Just as I am, Jesus said, not of this world. Sanctify them by your truth, for your word, O God, is truth. And as you sent me into the world, also I have sent them into the world. That's you, that's me. We are salt, we are light. That's why he would later go on to write in his epistle the first letter. First John, John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things of this world. For they're all perishing. You see, Christ's kingdom, Christ's world, the kingdom that he's talking about is not of this world. It's of another world. And you're of that world. And we're supposed to be different than this world. This world is filled with dirt. And so this life of the Beatitudes, the life about which Paul would actually write of the manifestation of it in Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that we are that sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You, you see, you're supposed to help save people understand that God's still with us and he is not against us, and no weapon fashioned against us can prosper. And one day, heaven, we're to give each other that blessed hope of his glorious appearing. Amen? You see, to the save, we are that kind of salt, we are that kind of light. But you're also, to those who are perishing, to one the aroma of death unto death, and to the other the aroma of life unto life. You see, you're to help people understand the truth about the eternal destiny that they face. You're here because you're being used of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, For we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people, for God's very own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. So as Jesus speaks these truths in the Sermon on the Mount, his concern is for the whole multitude. But his concern is also for the world. His concern is for the lost. And so he begins to speak forth these truths. An unbeliever is not capable of living these truths out because they don't know these truths to be true. They're kind of silly sounding. You tell walk up to somebody who doesn't know Jesus and go, Man, it's sure good to see you, Salt. Nice to meet you, Light. They're going to think you are whack. You know, you, you've been taking some kind of drug or something. It's a mandate for you. It's a mandate for me. It's who we are in our influence in this world. And, and you see, these things, interestingly enough, remind us that we're not to live our Christian lives out in isolation. You're supposed to be in the world. Because salt does nothing sitting in a bucket. Amen? Light doesn't have any value if there's no one there to see it. Who cares if it's dark or light? It doesn't matter if there's no people involved. You see, what Jesus is really saying is because there are lives involved and those lives matter, they matter eternally, every last one of us is going to live someplace for all eternity. You've got two choices, heaven and hell. And because there is option A and there is option B, you're to be light in this world so people know about option A. You're to be salt in this world so people know about option A, heaven. Because they're already destined for the other one. Because without him, that's where you end up. You make a conscious choice to exit this world without Christ, you've sealed your own destiny. You you've chosen by not choosing in other words. And so Jesus said, Christians have to be salty. Salt is needed any time. There's a possibility even of corruption. In our world and in that world that they lived in, salt preserves from, from corruption. It preserves from destruction. Matter of fact, salt is the world's oldest disinfectant and the world's oldest preservative. It's both those things as hard as it is for us to understand, but if in that day and time you got a scrape or you got a cut, they would dump salt into the wound. That's not a bad thing. You know why? It disinfected it. I don't recommend you go home and try it. You know, we have, you know, lots of sprays and ointments and creams and you can get out your three-in-one antibiotic and smear it on there. But then it was Salt and so if something had the possibility of becoming infected the answer was put some salt in it and the one thing you didn't want to do is dump dirt in there so you made sure the salt was salt and not dirt and salt put some salt on it if your food wasn't gonna last for a while put some salt on it it preserves it gives flavor it saves from decay. It stimulates the appetite. One of the reasons that salt is so good on a steak is because it stimulates your appetite. Your salivary glands begin to work overtime. So if you watch me eat a steak, I'm like, could I have some more meat? Because I've am i got enough salt here. You know, I'm like shaking it on there. It's the illusion that's being made here. He's saying, look. Salt makes things it's put on more savory. It's a moral disinfectant in the world where the standards are low. They're constantly changing. It's a stable uh, force in our world. Do you realize that you guys have the preserving effect in this world? That's why there's going to come a time when the Holy Spirit and the church will be taken out of this world And the restraining effect that the church has and the Holy Spirit has because the Holy Spirit in the church is going to be removed and all hell is going to break loose on earth. Because you guys are the ones that show the world what it means to be a follower of Christ. We're the ones that are restraining that in that sense. Pure sodium chloride doesn't deteriorate. It preserves everything. Interestingly enough, the number one ingredient, the reason that you can go to the Museum of Natural History in, in New York and you can look at mummies, or you can go to the Science Center and look at mummies, the reason that you can see the face of Ramses II today some 1,500 years later is because of one thing, natron salt. That was the chief ingredient that was used in mummification. Layers of salt and bandages. It preserves. But if you lose your character, if you just spread a little, you know, some dirt, some mud on old Ramses, man, he'd be a mess today. He'd be bones. But he was preserved because of the salt. That's the purpose for you. That's a purpose for me. This world is very spiritually dark, and it needs you guys. It needs the church. Can you imagine what would happen if if the church was removed from the world? It's pretty bad with us in it, amen? Think about what if we weren't here. And in the same way, he speaks about the light, the lamp. The whole world should be able to, to look at your light and see our light, see the light of God's people in the church and in our lives individually. And they should be watching to see what it is that we illuminate. I don't know how many of you have ever been to, you know, like Ringling Brothers, Barnum & Bailey, the, the circus, and you go, or maybe you've gone to see Cirque du Soleil, or you've seen any of the, you know, maybe you watched the Chris Walenda as he walked across the Grand Canyon or whatever. When you, when you watch something like that, to where there's this constant possibility for death, and you see that that person carefully and calculatedly makes all the steps necessary to get across that situation. A high wire trapeze, you know, to watch people fly through the air 40, 50 feet off the ground over a concrete floor. That net that's down below, yeah, it's a safety net, it's there if they mess up. But the fact of the matter is, if they're not careful, they die. They jump back up. We, we live in a trapeze show. We, we live in a high wire act. There's a possibility for death, especially spiritual death, every moment of every day. You live in a world that's trying to kill you. The world outside the doors of this church, even in the doors of this church, at times, because of the influence of the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We live in a hostile work environment. Amen? Yeah. That's the way the world is. If you don't know that as a believer, you're, you're deluding yourself. It's a hostile world that we live in. The world does not like our values. I was listening to some of that presidential, I guess you could call it a debate or a circus. One of the, It's kind of a circus as well, now that I think about it watching some of that media circus and listening to people talk about all this stuff. And, And I'm thinking to myself, you know, as they're going through all these questions, what's the answer? Jesus. What's the answer to immigration reform? Jesus. What's the answer to radical Islam? Jesus. What's the answer to our economy? Jesus. You see what I'm getting at? The answer is found in Christ, all those things. You start li- If our government were living the way you're supposed to live, fiscally, the way the Bible declares that we should live, you're not to be a debtor to anyone. Can you imagine if we had no debt? We currently have $19 trillion in debt. That's not of God. The answer is the light of the world. If we cared for all people equally, we wouldn't have the problems we have. We talk about these things, well, you know, there's these, these, this group of people and that group of people. As far as God's concerned, there's one group of people. They're called people. His kids. He'd do away with race. He'd do away with creed. He'd do away with all the religious craziness that, that affects our world. You see, Jesus is the salt and light. the answer to all of it. That's why we need Christian men and women in every office of government. Every office, because we bring salt, we bring light into those situations. Jesus begins to put these things in, in view for us when he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, Look, if you live like salt and light in this world, I guarantee you're going to get persecuted. Because the world doesn't like savory Christians. The world doesn't like light-bearing Christians. The world loves darkness. Jesus said that. Men love the darkness. And so he sends us out into the world to take our light and our salt out there. When a batch of contaminated salt would find its way into a household, they'd just toss it out. They wouldn't ever put it in a garden They wouldn't put it in a farm field. They wouldn't put it where they wanted something to grow. They'd put contaminated salt where they didn't want anything to grow, where they wanted it to be dead. kind of ties into our message this morning. You see, as Christians, we're to be very much alive. Jesus was speaking to to these same disciples he said my sheep hear my voice i know them they follow me i give them eternal life they'll never perish and none of none can be snatched jesus isn't talking about salvation when he says hey go be salt and go be light he's saying if you don't there's a problem you know you're out he's saying that if you're in here's your task here's your goal here's your mission go fulfill it and pure salt doesn't lose its saltiness You can keep salt around for millennia and it'll still be salty. Because it doesn't rest in the character of the person that possesses it. It rests in the character of the salt itself. And so Jesus says, look, I made you salty. Go be salt. I've given you light. Go bear light in this world. You are those things because of who you are in me. Paul addressing that issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, speaking about, you know, how to disqualify yourself. You see, you can't ultimately think of this in any other way than, Lord, I know you have a purpose for me. Paul said, I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection, lest when I've preached to others I, I myself should be disqualified. I don't want to get dirty in this world so that I'm not salt and I'm not light. I want to make sure that I'm doing good. You want to hear those words. When you get to heaven, you want to hear, well done, hey, Brad, great to see you, good and faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom of rest. You want to hear those words. You want to be valuable. You want to be effective. And if you're pure of heart, you won't become tasteless. You won't become ineffective. You won't become useless. And light, too, in the same way, just like salt, is an essential thing. It's an essential nature. Light is light. Amen? Darkness is simply the absence of light. That's all it is. In a physical sense, in our universe, if there's any light, there's light. If there's darkness, it's because there's no light. Darkness itself is not anything. Light is the substance. Darkness is the absence of the substance. Jesus is light. He sent you out into this world as light. So wherever light is, darkness cannot exist. The light always overcomes the darkness. Light drives out darkness. Sometimes we hide our light, though, don't we? And again, no show of hands. You don't have to confess to Pastor Jeff. But probably everyone in here is at some point in time, if you walk with the Lord for any period of time at all, you've probably put your light under a bushel basket. You got into that conversation. Maybe it was at work with somebody. Maybe they you feel they're intellectually superior to you and they have the upper hand. Maybe they're your, uh, your employer, perhaps. It's someone who has authority over you and you know they kind of know you're a Christian but they don't really know what that means and you have opportunity to bear witness and shine light in their life and you just clam up. You take your light, you tuck it under a bushel basket. It's not what the Lord wants. He wants the light to shine. He wants you and I, us, we, to take that light out pour in some more oil, trim the wick, and beam out into the world. Amen? He wants us to be visible for His kingdom. Persecution causes us to kind of tuck it under the basket. What people will think of us, we tuck it under the basket. We don't want to be accused of being, you know, too churchy. Can I tell you that's a badge of honor? As long as you're not obnoxious. But when you're being persecuted because you're so much like Jesus, people are a little wigged out around you, that's a good thing. When someone cleans up their speech, when you're next to them and they're telling some joke and they apologize because they know you're a Christian and your light is so shining, they say, I'm I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that around you. That is a good thing when that boyfriend or girlfriend says, you know what, I don't know that I want to date you anymore because you're not going to be what I want. That's a good thing. Amen? When you stop getting invited to those parties because you are the cosmic killjoy of the BuzzFest, that is a good thing. Amen? That's the light shining. That's the salt sprinkling. That's you doing what God's called you to do. You've you called, been called to be that way. People should get a little wiggy around you at times. And if they don't, maybe you're not being salty enough. Maybe you're not shining light where you should. And again, I don't say that to condemn anybody. We've all had moments where we tucked the light under the basket. We've all had moments where our salt's gotten polluted with the dirt of this world. The good news is, clean it up, purify it, pull it out, trim the wick, fill it with oil. There's a time coming, that parable of the foolish virgins. There's going to be a time when that oil's not going to be available. Right now it's available by the bucket load. Grab you some more oil. Trim that wick. Light yourself on fire for Jesus. And that persecution will do that to you. You have to make a choice when you're persecuted, don't you? Isn't it crazy how when that comes and people start, you know, there's always that group, whether it's at work or at school, maybe so your sphere of influence. I have some family members who openly, uh, at times, mock the Lord. Unfortunately, one of those family members has passed on to to meet the Jesus that he mocked his whole life. But you get into those situations. Sometimes holidays, you know, those, those holidays that we love to celebrate, they're not so fun when you have unsaved family and you're the minority, are they? You're sitting around the table and you're carving the turkey and you want to you pray and people look at you like you've got a third eye in the middle of your forehead. You want to do what? you want to pray to some non-existent God and they go on and on and on about how scientists have that God doesn't exist. And of course, they're full of hogwash. I don't even know what hogwash is, but it's a good thing. <laughs> it's some kind of soap, I guess. I don't know. But they, but they tell you that, you know, you're just loopy. That's a good thing. That means you shine some light on them. And it's messing with their Karma. You're not going with the flow. You're sprinkling some salt on that open wound that is the putridness of their life and they don't like the way it feels. Blessed are you when people persecute you for His name's sake. If you be salt and light, you're going to get some people pretty upset from time to time. Wear it proudly. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be mean-spirited. Don't be angry about it. You be Jesus and let them sort out the details. I don't think you should be surprised by the anti-Christian sentiment that's in our world right now. Your Bible says it will increase in the last days. As we're about ready to delve into that part of the book of Revelation, I can tell you it's not going to get better. I have conversations fairly frequently with people, you know, because they'll say, well, you know, you Christians have been saying these apocalyptic things for 2,000 years. Uh Uh-huh, we have. And we've been waiting for Jesus for a couple thousand years. But he's just closer than he was then. And his word's still true. And no matter whether you believe it or not, the world is winding down. Man's reign is about over. The age of grace is coming to a close, and the Lord's looking for a few good people to bear His light and to be salt in this world. What's your life like when the witness is tested? When the heat's on? What are your reactions to pressure? When people pressure you about your relationship with the Lord, what happens? Does it make you more bold? It's kind of a neat thing that happens when you get a little bit older in the Lord. Having people upset with you is kind of like, see where this goes. See if they come up with a new question. Because you've studied to show yourself and approve workmen, rightly dividing the word of truth, so that when somebody asks you of the hope that lies within you, you can give them an answer. Are we willing to take a stand for Jesus alone, if necessary? Will you stand alone for Christ? If nobody go with you, will you stand? Will you be salt? Will you be light? It's important. So important, because you're going to have times when it's going to be you and you, you alone with the Lord. Will you continue to shine when it's super dark? One of the beauties of spending time in the, in the High Sierra, especially the eastern High Sierra where you're away from the, the cities that are on the western slope, it is dark is dark. It's beautiful stare out at the stars. And one of the coolest things is to lay on your back out in a meadow, maybe on a rock, and just look up at the night sky. And just after su- the sun goes down, there's still enough ambient light from the sun uh, rotating around off of the, out of view the earth's actually spinning, sun's not moving, but in in a physical sense, the sun goes down and if it happens to be one of those moonless nights and and then all of a sudden there's one star it's actually usually one of the planets that you see for the space station and then there's two and then three and as it gets darker and darker and darker the light gets brighter and brighter and brighter That's you. As it gets darker, the light should be brighter. And before you know it, you're laying there at 11, 12, midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, and the Milky Way is just displayed in all of its glory. You're looking right out into the edge of our galaxy. Oh, that we would be like that as the church. I'm going to have the worship team come on back up. I just want to encourage you. You're doing well. You're doing the Lord's work. You you are being used as salt. You are being light in our world. Let's just get a little more salty. Let's be like Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. Can you imagine he said at the end of his life, he, he was asked to deny Christ. He said, look, how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You can cut me in half. I don't care. French pastor during the time of the Reformation, Francois Fenelon, he, 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 it was said of him that he was so light-filled that he had a, a heathen visitor that had come from the French hierarchy, that the King Louis had sent a person to spend the night with them, and on the second night he said, I have to get out of this house because I'm afraid I will give my life to Jesus if I stay another night. Man, how would you like to have that said about you? The people are afraid to stay in your house because you might, you might actually cause them to come to Jesus. May we be like that. May we have such an impact in our world that we're shining light wherever we go and we are so salty that we are savoring up this world for his kingdom to come and his will to be done so we can get out of here. So we can go home. Amen.